Welcome to another exciting episode of Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the hosts are their own. Hello, I'm Christine Leo, and I am a fellow with the National Institute of Deterrence Studies. So I am a scholar of strategic theory and concepts. And so one of the areas that I focus on is the relationship between deterrence, extended deterrence, arms control, arms race stability, and disarmament. For this episode, I'll focus on extended deterrence. That is, country A deters country B from attacking country C. For extended deterrence to work, the message from country A to country B should be, there should be no doubt that my resistance to you will be total should you threaten the country I am protecting. And since the dawn of the atomic age, the character and shape of US extended deterrence, because no other country has done it, has differed from ally to ally. The NATO countries have had what we might call a maximalist serving of US extended deterrence. They've had the NATO nuclear planning group, U.S. conventional and nuclear military forces deployed on European soil, and U.S. declaratory policy has been specifically tailored to deterring Soviet Union and Russian aggression against Europe. With other countries like South Korea, Japan, and Australia, that's been different. It was only 10 years ago that formal extended deterrence dialogues were set up with Seoul and Tokyo. There's no multilateral alliance between these Asia-Pacific countries like the NATO alliance. They each have their own separate treaties with the U.S. There are varying levels of U.S. conventional forces deployed there, but currently no nuclear weapons deployed. And as we've been discussing in this series and in Adam's nuclear cast, it is only nuclear weapons that deliver the ultimate form of deterrence. Now, during the Cold War, Asian allies didn't necessarily need deployed U.S. nuclear weapons on their territories or a capability like slicker men because they were never at the center of strategic competition the way NATO was. They benefited from extended deterrence in a much more distant manner. It wasn't tailored to their needs specifically because they, and the U.S., generally concluded that an attack on their soil was unlikely to occur outside the context of a general war between NATO and the Soviet Union. So extended deterrence was a global phenomenon. And then when the first Cold War ended, nuclear weapons took a back roll, and arms control and disarmament became much more popular and feasible. But today, the US and its allies face the prospect of direct conflict with Russia and China. This is unprecedented in the nuclear age. That's why the 2022 Nuclear Posture Review is such a confusing document. It's a shy statement about the role of nuclear weapons in deterrence. It acknowledges the the reality of a dark world, but does little to encourage deterrence by nuclear weapons. And again, seen historically, this isn't surprising. Since the end of the Cold War, there's been considerable confusion about the role of nuclear deterrence. There were many reasons for this including the tendency of many scholars, public policy figures, and peace activists, like Global Nuclear Zero, to associate these weapons with the Cold War. However, we should not forget 
that it was an interesting historical coincidence that the Cold War and the nuclear age emerged at roughly the same time. So when the Cold War ended, it only seemed logical to many that the nuclear age too had ended. But we are now truly in what Professor Prull Bracken termed over 10 years ago as the second nuclear age. Rather than two dominant superpowers, we have many powers with big GDPs, advanced technology, and in many cases, nuclear weapons. The different worldviews and different problems facing these powers has led to a different pattern of relationships. In Asia today, great powers are actively engaging in power balancing and hedging. Nationalism is a potent force in foreign policy decision-making. There's an obvious arms race, and the distribution of power is in flux. It's a place in the world where the use of armed force to resolve disputes is considered acceptable. There are no arms control agreements on either nuclear or even conventional forces. The increasing saber-rattling of Russia, China, and North Korea indicate that the nuclear taboo has significantly eroded. U.S. regional conventional superiority, a ladder in the escalation control system, no longer exists, and there is no longer strategic warning time for conflict. The warnings and indicators for Russian and Chinese aggression have been obvious for the last decade. Russian incursion into Ukraine in 2014 and Chinese military activity in the South China Sea since the 2010s. Yet there's been a reluctance in the US and the West generally to accept that nuclear weapons have re-emerged as a critical instrument of geopolitical order building. And just like nuclear weapons helped keep the first Cold War cold, their role will soon need to increase in the Asia-Pacific to deter China from attacking Taiwan and attacking targets in US allies in case war unfolds. If US allies are expected to believe in US extended deterrence, a few options would help. One would be deploying more conventional forces in theater. In addition to troops, this would include things like increased and dispersed IAMD assets, B-21 bombers, and hypersonic missile bases. But historically, for all allies, nuclear weapons have been, and remain, the bedrock of extended deterrence. Without nuclear deterrence, US conventional forces just aren't credible. It is the ultimate weapon, the ultimate threat that deters wars and reassures allies. Since even the last 10 years, they have been discussing what form US extended deterrence should take, a sign of the need to tailor deterrence for Asian allies specifically and not as a broad Cold War package we saw with the US and USSR. Deploying nuclear weapons on allied soil as an additional tripwire, this could be an option. South Korea has in the past hosted US nuclear weapons. Australia considered this option in the 1960s. Japanese analysts have suggested this possibility. Extended deterrence is not just declaratory policy. The US has to demonstrate its willingness to defend allies by physical commitment. In terms of risks this presents, the bigger question for allies remains what they want the alliance to do. And how much do they accept the risks that their alliance with the U.S. entails? 
Thank you so much for listening. I'm Christine Leo with NITS.